it goes to show that for the Fed right now, for Powell especially, inflation is the enemy one, two, three, four, five. There is nothing else on the radar. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. They say the smart money is in the bond market, but that hasn't kept it from having one of its worst starts to the year ever, as yields have risen substantially since January, bringing prices down hard. Now, when the bond market speaks loudly like this, the wise investor listens. As we look at the environment now, what is the bond market telling us is likely to happen next? To find out, we welcome back macro analyst and former bond portfolio manager Alfonso Pecatiello to the program. Alf, thanks so much for joining us all the way from the Netherlands. <laughs> Adam, nowadays it's pretty simple uh, via Zoom call, but it's a pleasure to be back on Wealthy on this one of my preferred shows. Oh, that's so kind of you to say and really enjoyed having you on a couple months ago, Alf, and have gotten so many requests to have you back on. I'm so glad you could come join us here again. Um, all right. Lots to talk about, uh, especially about bonds. Um, but real quick, let's just start with uh, the opening question of what is your current assessment of today's global economy and financial markets? So global economies is um, the global economy is obviously slowing down at this stage. We are having the impulse of growth uh, that is coming down. People, Adam, often uh, think in, uh, are we growing or are we in a recession? But the reality is that uh, for market returns, what matters the most is the trajectory of growth. Are we accelerating in our growth pattern or are we decelerating in our growth pattern compared to expectations? That right now we are decelerating. We have been decelerating in the impulse of growth since summer last year. And uh, that is translating as well into a situation where central banks, unfortunately, cannot ease financial conditions in this environment, as we are used to see them doing over the last decade. But they have been tightening monetary policy via so-called forward guidance and now literally also by hiking and the Federal Reserve by shrinking their balance sheet. Um, we are in a situation which is pretty much unprecedented compared to the last 10 years, one can say at least since the great financial crisis which is leading to quite some realized volatility in markets too, and some turbulence as well. All right, great, great initial context here. And, and Alf, you spent you know, the, the chunk of your career working uh, in the bond market, running a, a multi-billion dollar bond portfolio. I think it was like $20 billion. I mean, it's a lot of money. Um, and you just used the word unprecedented. All right, so um, so let's dig into that here. So let's let's talk about bonds here. Uh, they've had uh, one of the worst starts to the year ever for the bond market. I think I might have seen some charts to say it was the worst start of the year ever for the bond market. Is it is it really that bad? Yes. So I think if you look at the Barclays aggregate uh, bond ETF, so that includes risk-free bonds, treasury. Uh, government bonds and corporate bonds. They, they bundle them all together in an ETF. If you look at the total return of that Barclays aggregate bond ETF is one of the worst starts of a year ever. And as a drawdown from peak to let's say where we are today in terms of prices of the ETF, it is probably one of the worst drawdowns in the history of that ETF. So it's pretty bad. And to understand what's going on there, we need to think about the starting point. So let's rewind back for a second, Adam, and we go back to, let's say, September 2021 or summer 2021. In summer 2021, we had two things. We had 
the, the forward path for risk-free interest rates as set by the bond market pricing what the Fed and the ECB and the Bank of England and the Bank of Japan would have done over the next five years. The pricing for that was for rates to remain at the lower bound, so at 0% in America, at minus 0.5% in Europe, for the foreseeable future. There was no hiking whatsoever possible. Central banks had to remain accommodative because inflation hadn't picked up. The economy was starting to re-engineer growth, but nobody believed that the nominal growth could have been that big, and especially that inflation could have been a problem. On top of it, you had credit spreads being extremely, extremely tight. And I mentioned the Barclays aggregate bond ETF, and that is risk-free ETF, treasuries, government bonds, they mostly depend from the, the price of these items, depends from the path, the future path of, of the monetary policy. But if you take the corporate bonds in this ETF, they also depend on the credit spread. So the, the, the additional yield the corporate has to pay on top of a treasury to refinance their business model. And these credit spreads were extremely tight, extremely narrow back then as well. And why? Because the economy was picking up and central banks were accommodative on top. So there was basically no volatility and all investors were piling up on anything that had any yield. So if you start from that situation where credit spreads are very tight and there is no high price too as well for the next five years, and then all of a sudden you get an inflation that seems to be much more resistant to the so-called hump, as Lagarde said in Europe, you know, inflation is a hump, it's going to peak, it's going to go down. You get central bankers that get nervous. And that's what Powell actually signaled already in November 2021. He told us that he had changed his mind, basically. And that communication change has caused forward guidance to completely change, materially change. Investors had to reprise a hiking cycle from the Federal Reserve, a very aggressive one. And now we are hearing even the European Central Bank telling us even a 50 basis point hike all at once from Europe, guys. That is really a news. Yeah, exactly. you guys are the last ones who ever want to hike. <laughs> I mean, we basically had no volatility, no hikes priced for seven years, for the best part of seven years. And now we're talking about even a 50 basis point hike. So it has been that change that has led to this drawdown. But the other way to look at it is to decompose bond yields in real yields and inflation expectations. And what has happened is that inflation expectations have picked up because realized inflation has grown. And now we are um, considering, pondering about deglobalization. We are pondering about not relying on external global supply chains, insourcing the production of things, which is going to cost more. We are pondering about the green transition. So inflation expectation has risen because spot inflation is higher. And there are some potential long-term inflationary changes we are undergoing. And real yields now too have started to go up as well, Adam, because central banks now need to slow down the economy. And how do you slow it down? By raising real yields, by making the cost of the reward of owning money much more than before in inflation adjusted terms and the cost for borrowing much more expensive. So people are incentivized to keep money idle and companies, private sector, does, does not have a borrowing that is so cheap as it was in the past. That also explains why nominal yields have risen so much. All right, great point. So, you know, at a high level, it's, it's almost kind of an unwinding of everything that we've been pursuing for the past several decades, right? You know, we've, globalization, maybe now deglobalization. Um, we've been really juicing the world economy with, with plentiful cheap money. 
uh, and now the cost of capital is repricing and the central banks are also beginning to start to drain liquidity, right? So, I mean, in many ways it, it is, uh, it's, not, it's not an exact carbon copy, but it, it, is, it, is, it is very much, yeah, everything we were doing, we're actually gonna do the opposite of that going forward. Um, and there are a number of things you mentioned I want to dig into here. One thing real quickly, um, just for people that aren't super familiar with bonds, um, when you talk about credit spreads, um, you're basically talking about the difference in yields between different types of, of bond instruments. And correct me if this is incorrect, but sort of the way I look at credit spreads, is it's, it's sort of a measure of... Uh, risk of how people price risk in the market, right? A, a high yield bond, junk bond should have a much higher yield than say US treasury. But yeah. if those credit spreads are tightening, um, it basically means one of two things. Um, but but it, it, well, it means that, that, that um, risk is getting less and less of a premium, right? People aren't, aren't being forced to pay for more risk. And that happens in one of two ways. It happens because people just aren't feeling nervous Right, mm -hmm. they're feeling confident. Yeah, yeah, that, I'm sure that high yield debt's gonna, that company's gonna do fine, right? Um, or it means that the central planners are stepping in and they're 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 manipulating those spreads to keep them low, right? And honestly, I think both have been going on. Um, you've had the central banks manipulating, um, keeping interest rates at rock level bottoms. Um, they've been buying a lot of debt, right? Keeping uh, keeping the yields uh, down, um, and then. The longer they've done that, you were saying, you know, people then get forced to go chase yield. Um, they've been forced out on the risk curve and things have been so stable for so long. They got used to it and said, hey, you know, everything's fine. Right. And, and I sort of had this analogy of pushing people further and further out on thinner and thinner ice. And the longer that they haven't cracked through the ice, they start treating it with the confidence of concrete, even though it's very risky. And then, of course, at some point it all goes to hell in a handbasket and things get bad very quickly. You're kind of nodding as I'm saying all this, but am I, am I sort of describing the credit spread dynamic well? So you, you are perfectly right, Adam, that credit spreads are nothing else than the difference in yield that a corporate or a private sector entity has to face when borrowing against the treasury department, right? So you look at the yield of a corporate bond against the yield of a treasury bond, that's it. And then you get a measure for credit spreads. Now, credit spreads are generally very tight when the economy is accelerating. So people extrapolate, Adam, that you know, companies are going to make more profits, they're going to be able to service their liabilities and their debt in a much easier way because everything is growing, everything is going fine. Right. And or, so you're not that worried, so you demand a lower yield, right? What premium? I mean, why would you be worried? You can lend money to a high-yield corporate demanding less premium if you expect that the high-yield corporate to actually make more profits. Because right. then why would you be worried about them being able to repay you, right? You can demand a lower premium. Alternatively, you can be not that worried if the central bank is coming in and is saying, I'm going to buy all the bonds from these guys. So you basically can sell them to me. It's fine. I'm going to keep on buying every month. And basically, the price of these things will go up, which will, make, which will compress artificially credit spreads. Those are the two th things that actually had happened together at the same time in 2021. You had the Federal Reserve, which was embarked in bond buying. And at the same time, you had an economy which was cyclically in, improving, right? We talked about the nominal GDP growth in the US, which was incredibly high at the end of 2021. Okay. Now you're looking at a situation which is vastly different. It's the opposite. <laughs> exactly the opposite. You have not only the central bank, which is not buying anymore, 
which is now promising to not even roll over their maturing securities from the balance sheet. So they are embarking in the so-called quantitative tightening, which basically means if there is a treasury that, that matures from my balance sheet and I'm supposed to reinvest that money to keep the balance sheet the same level, I'm not even going to do that anymore. I'm going to let it roll over, which means that when there is an issuance of a new security, it's not the Fed which is going to buy it, but it's us. It's the private sector. It's asset managers. It's banks. It's pension funds. They need to step up and buy that security. Now, they need to buy that security issued from perhaps a corporate while the economy is also slowing down. So the receipts, the earnings that that company can rely on to service those liabilities are less impressive than they were in 2021. So you see the combination of the two things doesn't bode well, especially as quantitative tightening not only reduces the demand from the Fed because they simply don't buy bonds anymore, but it also reduces the amount of reserves in the system. So if we think about it, Adam, how does it work literally is that when the asset side of the Federal Reserve balance sheet shrinks, so on the asset side, they have the bonds. The bonds they have bought under QE, right? They have purchased them, they've increased their balance sheet. Now they basically do not reinvest that maturing security, which means that their balance sheet will shrink. It will become smaller. That's the asset side. But what is on the liability side of the Federal Reserve balance sheet? By accounting rules, that has to shrink by the same size. If we shrink the asset, we shrink the liabilities, unless we are cutting the equity of the Federal Reserve, but we are not doing that. So we shrink the liabilities. And the liabilities are, are bank reserves. Those liabilities at the Fed, those bank reserves, are the same bank reserves that are in the interbank system. It's the Federal Reserve which is responsible to pump those reserves into the banking system. So now, now those will come down. What does this mean? It means that a bank that can, a bank under liquidity rules, the so-called liquidity coverage ratio rules, is forced after 2008 to own an amount of liquid assets on their balance sheet. Extremely important. The regulator said, if there is a bank run, if there is a stress situation where you guys are gonna run at banks and try to withdraw all deposits, I'm gonna stress that scenario and I'm gonna force banks to own enough liquid assets on the asset side to actually service these outflows. I don't want, I don't want bank to go up for liquidity problems. That basically was the word the regulator said. So they forced banks to own liquid assets. Do you want to guess what is eligible by regulators as a liquid asset? I can help you. Bank reserves, the same bank reserves we were talking about before, those are counted in this liquidity coverage ratio rule, and bonds. Now, when there are plentiful of bank reserves and there is a low volatility environment, the economy is growing, what banks do are like, you know, these bank reserves yield nothing. They, they give me no return. They give me nothing. I will exchange the composition, I will cut these bank reserves and I will buy some more bonds with it, including some of the corporate bonds. They are eligible for this ratio. They will be more incentivized to take more risks. Now the economy is slowing and the bank reserves are dropping on their balance sheet by the effect of QT. So their incentive to be there and buy the corporate bonds that they need to buy, because remember the Federal Reserve is not buying the bonds anymore. Somebody need to buy them, right? So banks, hey, but banks have less reserves and the economy is lowering. So they will demand probably a bigger premium. What is the premium? It's the credit spreads we were talking about before. So those credit spreads tend to widen, which in a vicious circle makes it more expensive for corporates to refinance their liabilities. 
What do corporates do if they can't refinance their liabilities very cheap? They cut their expenses. They lay off people. They stop investing. They don't do CapEx anymore. What does this achieve? It cools down the demand. It slows or they down. go out of business if they're a zombie company, but yes. Or, or, or if it's a higher company, probably it goes out of business. The Federal Reserve wants exactly that, Adam. They want to slow down and cool down things so that they can cool the inflation, the inflationary process down. So all of these, the widening of credit spreads, the quantitative tightening, credit spreads, everything we have discussed is all an engineered tightening of financial conditions. That is what the Federal Reserve wants to achieve, and they are not going to stop until inflation literally slows down in a remarkable way. All right, so very important point. And I just did an interview earlier today with Danielle DiMartino Booth, who used to work for the Dallas Fed, who said exactly the same thing. Um, so, you know, I, I, I wanna hammer this home because I still think the majority of people out there that are following the macro story, they think the Fed has got a glass jaw and the minute things get kind of uncomfortable that Powell's gonna pivot. And Danielle is doubtful of that at this point. And, you know, it sounds like you are, you get a fair degree of confidence that the Fed is, is committed to this, at least for the time being, right? Um, and one of the things I want to underscore too that you're talking about is you're basically saying that, so the reason why all this is important, folks, is because the global economy runs on credit, right? Think of credit as the lifeblood that's flowing through the circulatory system, of the, the global economy. Um, we are now saying that the amount of credit is going to start shrinking. And we're also saying that the cost of the credit is going to go up. And what both of those combined means is that less economic activity is going to happen going forward, right? And that's the sort of demand destruction that you're talking about, um, Elf. So what that basically means is that, you know, companies are gonna have a tougher time. They're going to be able to employ fewer people. You know, if the economy slows enough, we're going to go into recession. There might be yes. big layoffs coming out of that. Danielle and I actually went through a ton of data that I won't bore you with here, Alf, but about how it looks like recession is pretty much unavoidable at this point in time. Um, so it's really important. The, the thing I wanted to underscore here, and I sort of see you nodding here, Alf, but chime in, is, is you know, the economy, I'm not saying it's going into cardiac arrest, but we're saying that the, the 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 blood flow through the through the global economy is is slowing, and at the very least, is going to give it some arrhythmia here. Yeah, I have to agree with all that you just said. I want just to make sure that people can visualize what we're talking about, Adam. So, an extremely important point you made is that the economy runs on credit. So let's explain that for a second to the audience. Despite you have heard, not on Wealthium, because Adam is great, but on the mainstream financial media, you have heard that central banks print money, right? And yes, they do print a very weird form of money, which is bank reserves. Those are the same we talked about before. Those bank reserves are stuck in the interbank system. They can never get out. They cannot get spent in the real economy. Banks don't lend reserves, no. Central banks can only create interbank liquidity, which is very important for several things, including risk-taking, but I can't get access to reserves. I do not have an account at the Fed. Adam doesn't have it. You don't have it. We can't have an account at the Fed. What we do have is an account at JP Morgan, at Wells Fargo, at uh, whatever, uh, BNP, if you're in Europe, right? We use bank deposits 
to transact. They represent 97% of the money that we use. So the private sector amount of bank deposits, especially the consumers, the bank deposits sitting on our balance sheet, if they grow, this is more money we can spend. And do you know who grows that amount of bank deposits? Not the Federal Reserve, but it's banks and it's the government. So when the government makes a deficit, they blow a hole in their balance sheet, they literally print the money and they move it to the private sector. And they're like, guys, here's the checks. Your bank deposit is up. Now you literally have more money, not bank reserves, you have money and you can spend that if you want. That's a second derivative. You can spend it if you want, but let's leave it for a second. When banks lend, they extend credit. When they extend credit, they just literally grow your balance sheet. When you don't have money to buy a house, what the bank does, it literally credits your bank account. It makes it grow so that you have the money, credit in that case, to buy a house that otherwise you couldn't afford. So credit oils the system. It makes cyclical economic growth look stronger. That's when you inject credit. That's when you grow the bank deposits of the private sector. When you stop growing them that fast, the opposite happens. So here is a chart. The credit impulse against the earnings growth year on year of the company sitting in the S&P 500, lagged by 12 months. So the credit impulse basically measures if we are growing the amount of credit that gets thrown at Adam, me, and you guys, or if we are decelerating this process. You know, we are not, you're not increasing the amount of spendable bank deposits for us. And that, that is the blue line in this chart. The orange line is lagged by 12 months, and that's the S&P 500 companies year-on-year -year growth in earnings. Now, I like that, which means the credit impulse, the blue line, leads the orange line by 12 months. It's, it's a predictive indicator. Yeah, leading indicator. It's a leading indicator. And look how that works. You basically pump credit, the blue line goes up. 12 months later, earnings grow by 30, 40, 50% year on year. You stop pumping credit through the economy and earnings go down. It doesn't mean they literally drop, but the pace of growth slows down. So the growth engine stops. And now we are at a point, Adam, where the credit impulse had, has had after the sharpest increase ever in history because of the amount of fiscal deficits and bank lending that we had during the pandemic, sponsored by the government again. After that, we have a, a, a credit cliff. We had a credit sugar rush. Now we have a credit cliff. And when you have a credit cliff, the economy slows down. And now the central banks are like, yes, please, I really need it to slow down because on top of this, I've got inflation at 8%. And 8% is way outside what I deem to be acceptable. Now, in a situation where the credit impulse slowed down, the economy slows down, normally central banks used to support the economy. You remember in 2018, when you know, markets start to be very nervous, and we had the Fed put at the end of 2018, beginning of 2019. Why? Because inflation expectations were at 2%, Adam, because realized inflation was 2%. And so, and so Powell was like, okay, I don't want the economy to slow down that much. I don't want people to, to suffer from a negative wealth effect, to feel poorer, to stop consumption. I don't want that. Actually, if the equity market drops 20% and credit spreads widen, you, you might have layoffs. I don't want layoffs. I don't need layoffs. So he stepped in and he provided the proverbial Fed put. Now think about today. 
Today you have inflation at 8% and you have inflation expectation at 3%. Those are, this is a completely different environment in which probably you have the Fed cheering at the stock market dropping, at the dollar going up, at credit spreads widening. They do literally need the economy to slow down to tame inflation. And that is a completely different regime compared to the last 10 to 12 years. And that's why I use the unprecedented air quote, please me, because it's been an abused word over the last uh, few months. But it is really a situation we haven't faced over the last 10 years. All right. Yeah. And that's a great chart. Um, and and it, 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 it's hard to argue. And, and we could have a whole discussion just about the importance of the credit impulse itself. Um, but it, it's, it's just a mathematical relationship, pretty much. Um, so when you look at uh, the fact that it's predicting a dramatic slowdown, it's not like, well, sometimes these are correlated and sometimes they're not. The correlation is incredibly tight. Um, and that and plus a whole bunch of other factors is why I want folks to kind of get the message from this and some of my other recent videos here is that the odds of a recession ahead are are high, or at least they are they are uncomfortably high, high enough that you should be asking yourself, what steps could I be taking now to reduce my vulnerability to this, right? In case I lose my job, in case, you know, my company starts, you know, cutting budgets, whatever, right? Um, and there are lots of steps that people can take. Um, all right, so uh, I, you talk about unprecedented as well. One of the questions I asked Danielle, um, uh, and, and folks, by the time this video comes out, the Danielle one should be out too, so I'll put up a link to it here. Um, uh, you know, I asked her the question that I think lots of people have been asking, which is why the heck did Jerome Powell renew his tenure at the Fed, knowing that there was all this pain coming down the road? I mean, he's he's got a front row seat to it. Probably nobody knows better than him exactly, you know, how, how challenging things are going to be for, for his tenure now. And her, her take on it was, well, it, it might be that he's playing for legacy, that he kind of got pushed around by, you know, first Trump and then Biden. And uh, she talked about this kind of Game of Thrones intrigue um, in terms of the leadership, a challenge to his leadership coming up to the renomination. And uh, she said two really interesting and what I think could be really important things. One is she said that, um, oh God, I think it was Quarles, former Vice Chair Quarles, who just recently said that uh, the Fed would, the Fed's been very criticized for not tightening sooner back in 2021. Um, and Quarles basically said, we were so busy with the the palace infighting <laughs> that it, it we were we were too dysfunctional at the time. Otherwise, we would have hiked back then. So it kind of gives a nod to exa like exactly kind of how much intrigue was going on there. Um, but anyways, now that Powell has quote unquote sort of won the Game of Thrones, what he might be doing now is saying, "All right, I am going to lash myself to the mast. I'm going to do what just needs to be done. I want to secure my name in the pantheon of great Fed chairs in the past, like Paul Volcker, whose name he mentions almost every week now. Um, so, so Powell may be really serious on doing whatever it takes to keep inflation under control. And you just talked about how, you know, it wasn't a limiter for Fed." recent feds previously, now it's a big one. He's going to go out and try to slay that dragon and doesn't really care at this point if he brings the market down with him or brings a recession in, if that's what he's got to do. So Adam, in uh, I think it was in December 2021, where Powell was for the first time very firm in the press conference 
he was asked about all the potential negatives, uh, you know, real wages are negative and the growth impulse is slowing down and participation rate is relatively low. He was basically teased with all these questions about the US uh, economy. And I made a joke back then in the, on the Macro Compass where I published an article and I basically said it sounded like an interview where journalists were asking questions to make him, you know, doubt his new hawkish stance, newfound hawkish stance, and his answer would be, I don't care, I am hawkish. Next question. I don't care, I am hawkish. So he was extremely assertive in the press conference and he has been, if you ask me, basically relentlessly for the last five months. And he has been mentioning Volcker quite some time, which is also interesting. It goes to show that for the Fed right now, for Powell especially, inflation is the enemy one, two, three, four, five. There is nothing else on the radar. And in the past, you always had, normally the Fed has a dual mandate, it's labor market and it's inflation. On the labor market, the Federal Reserve is so convinced that it will remain strong, that even in their own summary of economic projections, they have a, a, a Fed hiking path for Fed funds rate to go almost to 3% in 2023 and to remain at 2.8% in 2024. And when you look at their unemployment rate projections for 2023 and 2024, they are still below 4%. So basically they, they think that they can increase interest rates be above the levels of neutral, whatever that neutral is, they deem it to be between two and two and a half percent. So they can literally go into restrictive territory and nevertheless, the labor market is going to hold up very well. How strong of a message is that? They're basically telling you guys, we have two mandates and a half because the half mandate is to preserve financial stability, which is not to make the stock market drop 40% in a month. Basically, it's, it's a hidden mandate, but it's there. And right now we only care about one part, which is inflation. The second and a half part of the mandate, we couldn't care less. less. Yeah, and I, I, I agree. And I would, even, I would even say that Powell's last press conference was a declaration of a war on jobs. He spent so much time talking about, you know, the huge disparity between job openings uh, and applicants and stuff like that. Uh, and basically said, look, my job is to bring down the demand side. I can't do much about supply, but I can bring down demand. We got a hot labor market. So he basically just said, jobs market, I'm painting a big target on you and I'm coming for you. And we're already beginning to see uh, a, really a litany of, of rapidly increasing softness in, in the jobs market. And I just went through it all with Danielle, so I, I won't repeat it here. Um, I just got to go on record, though, and say the Fed is absolutely smoking crack <laughs> uh, in terms of, of what it thinks, Yeah, how, how, how strong its projections show the labor market's going to remain here. Um, and, 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 and I'd love to get your thoughts on that. But also, if we can, you had a chart I'd like to put up here real briefly, if you could talk to it for a second, too, of the Fed's inflation projections, just to show that the Fed's projections are generally way off kilter. <laughs> I just posted on Twitter, the handle is at macroalf. Um, also posted on the macro compass in the past, similar uh, projections where you can see Wall Street economists' projection for inflation. And part of it as well in that chart is the Fed own projection for inflation. And you have these dotted lines basically where the projections of where inflation would have been in, I don't know, April 2021 and then October 2021 and then December 2021. And you can always see these dotted lines basically reverting back, you know, it was projected to be the peak in inflation 
every time, right? It used to be September 2021, then it became December 2021, then it's February, it's always going to be the peak. And then you have the white line, which is literally inflation, the realized number, which is surprised on the upside every time. So I made a joke on the predictive abilities and skills of Wall Street economists, but even Fed economists at this stage to predict inflation. But Adam, the, the thing is, if you are now Powell and you, you, are, you have really communicated very clearly that your objective is really to tame inflation, how do you achieve that? So if you go into the weeds of monetary policy, he was very clear. I mean, the supply side of things, he can't do anything about it. He can't, he can't convince China not to apply the zero COVID policy and to make, you know, to, to ship away uh, all the components and semiconductor chips and anything that we use in the West in our supply chain. He, he can't do that. He can't make Russia and Ukraine stop a war so that Ukraine can export sunflower oil and neon and wheat and Russia can, can export energy. He can't do that. And he knows that. What he can do is to dampen demand fast enough that even if supply remains tight, then still inflation will have to drop. That's what he has in his mind. So how do you do that? It's uh, pretty simple. I have a chart here that shows real yields in the US against the equilibrium levels, which is called R star. So sounds difficult, but it's not. And R star is the orange uh, line in this chart. And it is the level of real interest rates in the US at which the economy doesn't overeat or doesn't cool down. It's a theoretical equilibrium rate at which the economy can function at its potential. And you can see it's the orange line. It's been dropping from the 90s to today because our, our population has aged. Our labor force doesn't increase that much anymore. Our productivity gains are so-so. We have a lot of leverage, both public and private. So the equilibrium rates are getting lower. That's the orange line. The blue line is, where are real interest rates trading today? So what is the prevailing real interest rate? That's a blue line. And the bars at the bottom, those are the difference. So when they're up, it means that the observed level of real rates is higher than my estimate for equilibrium. When they are below, it means they are lower. So when the bars are higher, and you can see there is a red, a red square there between 1998 and 2000, observed interest rate, real interest rates in the US were higher than my estimate for equilibrium. What happened? Ah, oh, the private sector could afford that for a bit, but at some point we actually went into the 2000 dot-com bubble burst, right? And then we had a massive uh, drop in aggregate demand and stock market crash, et cetera, et cetera. All right. Then the blue line had to go below the orange line. So the Federal Reserve had to rescue, had to ease a bit, right? Conditions for, you know, for things to improve again. In 2008, you had a similar situation where you had a sharp increase in this delta where basically observed levels of real rates all of a sudden became much higher in a very short time frame than the orange line. And that again caused a subprime, subprime uh, crisis and uh, all the real estate uh, crisis that we know. And you can follow basically this, this path and you can see us basically between 2020 and 2022, the Federal Reserve has been extremely accommodative. The, 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 the histogram lines, the, the, the bars there are all negative in deeply negative territory for quite a while. And that has caused overeating both in financial markets and in the real economy. And now the Federal Reserve is telling us, no, 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 that blue line needs to go up and fast and above levels of equilibrium. We need to tighten things up as soon as possible and as fast as possible. And that's what they are up for. They're up for 
slow down in the private sector so that aggregate demand slows down, hiring intentions slow down, the job market slows down. He pointed out at many times at this ratio, job openings against unemployed people. That's about two right now in the US. There are two job openings for each still unemployed person in the labor force. So that makes for a very tight labor market. And he doesn't need that because if a wage pressure develops on top of what we are already seeing, he might lose further its control and grip on inflation expectations. So what he's gonna do, it's gonna bring real rates higher than the equilibrium, credit spreads wider, stock prices lower, so that hiring intentions slow as well. Have you ever heard of a Federal Reserve chairman deliberately looking for a slowing down economy? I don't, I don't remember of any of the last 10 years. Well, except Volcker, but except yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we are, again, I wasn't even there when, when Volcker was around. We are in a, in a vastly different macroeconomic environment than we are used to. And so people that have this ingrained thought about the Fed put, I am afraid that the Fed didn't, didn't sell a put to the market. Right now, the Fed probably bought a put on the S&P 500 <laughs> on things to slow down. Of course, I'm not saying they want a crisis. They don't want a 30, 40, 50% slowdown, but they're happy with financial conditions tightening right now. Right. So da Danielle called it a controlled demolition, that that's what they're trying to have, where they don't want it to go down 30% overnight, but they're happy with it going down 30% over six months, say, right? And, and I laughed when you said that they bought a put on the market because... Um, you know, I'm not saying this is intentional, but it's just one of those moments where pictures worth a thousand words, where when you look at when those Fed executives were exposed to having been placing trades on their behalf, you know, while setting Fed policy, and they all said, all right, you know, they both, they all left the roles, but they said, okay, I've sold all my stocks, right? I'm showing that I'm not benefiting from this anymore. That was like the top of the market. Right. It's almost like the, it's almost like they sold their stocks and bought a put right then and they've been running down since. Um, well, look, so um, it was a great chart. And it's it's you just mentioned two things that I, I want to just underscore here because they're part of a great report that you just released uh, called your polar stars. Um, and um, you basically say, hey, look, I've got these two polar stars. Um, Real yields are moving up for the wrong reasons, and they sit above long-term equilibrium levels, equals not good, right? And you just went through that with the chart. Second, you said, despite the sell-off, my equity risk premium metric says stocks are neither cheap nor expensive on a long-term basis, and there seems to be more room to reprice farther down. Um, so first off, any other context you want to place around your polar stars? Because you, you wrote that piece to basically help people understand how you are navigating this new era we're entering into. So basically I have a bunch of macro indicators that I use to form my base case scenario, which informs my asset allocation as well, Adam. And people can read that on the macro compass. The macro compass is named after a dual axis model. So it forms a compass, right? And it has four quadrants. If you move on top or on the bottom or on the left or on the right, it depends from two main metrics, the credit impulse that we described before, and the relative monetary policy stance, which is uh, one of the indicators behind the relative monetary policy stance is again, the observed real yields against the equilibrium real yields. There are many more. And so there are also other polar star, macro polar star indicators I look at in the macro compass to 
inform me about you know the base case macro scenario I should have and the asset allocation too. And in this case, the second macropolar star indicator I was referring to is the equity risk premium. So people tend to look at asset classes in silos. They basically look at the stock market as a separate entity from the bond market, as a separate entity from the credit market. Guys, not really. Everything in our market is interconnected. So this equity risk premium metric is nothing else than my very simple estimate for what are people getting rewarded for in investing in equity, so putting their capital at risk in a marginal way compared to just investing in a risk-free asset. So people always have a choice. They can choose to have a, you know, a return that is a rel basically a risk-free real return, which is investing in treasuries denominated in the same currency they use every day, issued by the government in their domestic currency. And they can expect a certain return adjusted for inflation if they invest in that risk-free asset. That's their baseline, Adam. It's not zero. That's their baseline. And if they don't want to invest in that because they say, Alpha, I'm not interested in, in, the, in the bond market either, then they're depositing money in a bank account, which again reflects the Fed funds rate over time. That's how commercial banks will decide what is your, your rate on a deposit account. And in inflation adjusted terms, the real yield that you will get there. So your benchmark is not zero, but it is a risk-free investment. A commercial bank deposit is not a risk-free investment above the FDIC $250,000 government guarantee. So most people will consider treasuries, the real return they can make in treasuries as their real risk-free rate. And then I look at equities against that. So I benchmark them against my risk-free choice. And I look at the S&P 500 12 month forward earnings yield, which again, sounds difficult, but it's not. What I look at is a the basically the opposite of the price earnings, which is the earnings yield. And then I look at 12 months forward. I want to incorporate at least the estimates for earnings 12 months down the road. So those are cleared up right from the equation. And I want to focus on the valuation side. And that's why I use the opposite of the PE, it's a yield. And I'm comparing an earnings yield against the risk-free yield on the treasury, right? And then I look at, at basically the difference between the two is the additional compensation that investors are requiring to want to buy the S&P rather than to invest in treasuries in real terms. I hope I'm making sense here, right? So if you demand an additional yield and that's the earnings yield on top of the treasury yield, real yield of the treasury. You compare the two and you, you plot a 15 year chart. So a pretty, pretty long chart, right? And then I put two bars there, an expensive and a cheap line. And these lines are nothing else than a one standard deviation metric. So they tell me, you know, the average of this line, by the way, it's pretty constant over time at about five and a half percent. That's more or less the mean of this line. People demand an additional compensation of five and a half percent to invest in equities. So that's the equity risk premium, air quote, against investing in a risk-free asset. And now you can see that historically, Every time that you went below the yellow line, so at around about four and a half percent, well, there is a chance that people will say, I'm not getting compensated that much, right, to buy SP. So you can get one of the retracement to the mean. If you get very cheap, like during the pandemic, nobody wanted equities anymore, it was just a sell off, it was a fire sale, well, that's sp spiked all the way up to seven percent. 
It also did the same for quite some time between 2009 and 2012. They slowly revert back to their mean. So I use this macropolar star to understand whether the risk premium, the compensation people are requiring to own equities rather than to simply buy a treasury and get the real return there is higher low. And at the moment, we are at 5.3%, exactly in the middle of a 15-year band. So the stock market sell-off has reprised valuations, the 12-month forward PE of the S&P is down to 16, I think, which makes for an earning yield of almost 6%. But the real yield, so your risk-free alternative has also changed. Treasuries are now yielding 3% compared to a year ago where treasuries were yielding 1%, guys. So a year ago, of course, your additional compensation to own equities was different. The one that you required was different. Today, you have a risk-free alternative at 3%. So when you stop looking at equities in a silo and you look at them against your risk-free real alternative, you realize that at the end of the day, they are not that cheap, even after the sell-off we just had. Great point. Um, I just saw it stated yesterday that uh, we're, we're moving from Tina, which was there, there, there is no alternative, and that's why everybody piled in the stocks because you couldn't get return anywhere else, to now Tara, which is there are reasonable alternatives, which is sort of what you're saying here, right? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much there are. I mean, we... Um, at the moment, this is one of the environments where it's difficult to, the main objective from investors should be to preserve their purchasing power over time. And now we have inflation running at 8% year on year. So you're supposed at least to deliver an 8% nominal return and about every asset class is going down. So it, it is quite difficult to be honest. Um, and I've been on the macro compass pretty vocal from November about increasing your cash allocation, which wouldn't match your 8% inflation rate at all, but at least would save you from losing an additional 20% in the stock market. Exactly. Losing 8% to inflation uh, in real terms is way better than losing 20, 30% nominally and then real on top of that. So. But again, we just said that the Federal Reserve does not want us to make money circulate, to provide capital, to take risks. They want us to do exactly the opposite. They want us to pare back, to scale back, to slow down consumption, to slow down demand. So it is normal, Adam, I think, that in this environment, you get negative returns. In, in the fourth quarter of 2018, where the Federal Reserve was somehow trying to tighten monetary policy as well, not to the same extent, but we got 93% of all global asset classes delivering a negative return. This is a, a similar environment on steroids, because on right. top of that, we have an 8% inflation rate. Right. And I just want to mention a chart I've shown in previous months here um, from John Hussman, who before this year has long been saying, look, if you look where valuations are and historical benchmarks, and, and he's an absolute mathematical wizard. Um, so all the other data points that he looks at, he's basically said the, the market has been predicting 12 years of, of negative returns. Um, I think it was 12 years on average, uh, 6% negative annual returns, right? And, and, you know, it doesn't mean the market's going to yield negative 6% every year. It just means, you know, you're probably going to have some years where you're down an awful lot and, you know, some years that are up and whatnot, but, it, but largely sort of waving a flag of saying there could be a lost decade of returns here. And I'm not saying that that's exactly what you're saying here, Alf, but you're, you're saying we're entering a period like that. And because the Fed in some ways is driving the bus in that direction, 
of saying, look, if you're if you're a financial asset investor, don't expect the joyride you've had the past decade. Absolutely not, because the Fed doesn't want you to feel wealthier at this stage, not at all, because you would you would probably go around and spend some more if your 401k was higher in terms of market value. If the second house you have or the first house you have was higher in value, perhaps your spending patterns would become more volume. They want exactly the opposite right now. This is basically a reverse wealth effect. We had a wealth effect going on in our portfolios for a while because we seem to forget that between the second half of 2020 and uh, basically November 2021, in those 18 months, the stock market added several trillions of market capitalization, which meant our portfolios, our equity portfolio, our bond portfolios, they all went up in market value. There was a wealth effect, not to talk about the real estate market, Adam, which is the biggest market in the world right. by a mile. There is a chart here, a good study from Savile's research. Um, they basically provide the market capitalizations for each of the biggest asset classes in the world. And you would expect the equity market, right, to be the biggest market in the world, not by a slim chance. The equity market is about $100 trillion, which is pretty big. The bond market I'm reading is about $120 trillion. It's even bigger. The residential real estate market plus the commercial real estate market, it's about $300 trillion. It is bigger than the equity and the bond market combined. It's right. huge. 50% bigger than them combined. Um, yeah, it, it, it is huge. And that's, that is the fastest way to kill demand via a negative wealth effect is to make homeowners feel less wealthy because... 60 plus percent of the population owns a home. So they feel that directly, right? I mean, something like 80% of all the financial assets are owned by the top percent, the, 10, the top 10% of households. So, you know, what happens in the financial markets has much less impact on kind of the nation's wealth, well-being than the housing market. So I'm just, just providing some stats to underscore exactly what you're saying, Alf. You are exactly right. And the, um, the bulls in the housing market, if you look at the surveys, they're still expecting the housing market to grow in terms of prices by 12% this year. That's the median expectation. Yeah, and I'm sorry, but, I'm going to say this again. Those guys are smoking crack too, but anyways, finish. <laughs> <laughs> My point was that the monthly mortgage payment on the US median house has increased by 44% in a year. Exactly. So it, That's why I think they're smoking crack. <laughs> it has gone up from $1,700 a month to $2,500 a month. So it's $800 more per month. It's $10,000 more a year to try and buy the same U.S. median house than you bought a year ago. Now, right. Well, wages haven't moved up at all. And, you know, you're, 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 we're assuming people keep their jobs. I mean, all, so, yes, it's, you're, you're, I'm incredulous like you are. <laughs> It's ridiculous. And the other thing is the Fed will be achieving two results with that. A, it slows down the wealth effect for the largest part of the consumers. And you're perfectly right on that. Almost everybody owns a house, so it's directly impacted with second round effects on their consumer behavior. The second thing they achieve is that shelter inflation with the lag will slow down. Do not forget that rent of shelter represents about 40% of the CPI basket. It's pretty right. big. And as house prices rise, then as a second round effect, rents can rise too. 
if house prices start to drop and people are forced seller of their second house, they were renting out of the third house or whatever, it has a second round effect on rents to with a lag, they will stop going up, which means also inflation. Also that large component of the CPI basket will slow down, which will achieve another objective of the Fed, which is to slow down inflation. So it's just gonna happen. The housing market will slow down. Will it drop 30%? I don't think there are the conditions to see such, such large drops, but I think expectations are too rosy in the housing market too. Yeah, and I'll tell you, there are markets that could see a 30% correction just given how distorted they've they've become. Um, but I'll leave that for the housing experts to go into. So just to, just to make a twin point here, um, I talked earlier about how I really felt that Powell's last press conference was him declaring war on jobs. I think you also can look at it and say he's also declaring war on homeowners too. Yeah. Pretty much. So the way I see this is, okay, we want the private sector to have a harder access to credit because credit oils the system. The system is way too oiled. Look at inflation, it's at 8%. We want things to slow down. So what's the biggest market in the world? Uh, oh, it's the housing market. Okay. So what can we do about it? Well, credit more expensive means mortgage rates should, should go higher, right? Here we go. Mortgage rates moved from... 3% to 5.5% in three quarters, in two quarters, actually. This is the fastest two-quarter rolling increase in mortgage rates ever. It's recorded. insane. Yeah. Ever recorded. And people are like, Alf, yeah, but you know, uh, when I bought a house uh, 25 years ago, my mortgage rate was 11%, 15%. Sure. Your house price was also completely different than today. Exactly. So again, if people have to spend 2,500 a month to buy the US median house and their wage hasn't increased in real terms, Adam. You were pointing it out. After adjusting for inflation, the median wage in America has shrunk by 3% year on year. So you have people with less inflation adjusted purchasing power and energy bills have gone up and diesel is higher. And exactly. all so the disposable income they can spend as a mortgage installment to buy the median house <laughs> is probably lower than a year ago. And the price they need to pay in terms of mortgage installment is 44% higher. And higher. And they're not getting all that ex excess support they were getting over the past two years with oh, yeah. the checks yeah. and the moratoria and all that stuff. Let me say that the, the tax season, so there is a seasonality in, in the tax receipts from that the government receives, right? And around March, April, there is tax season in the US. And so you have this spike of tax receipts. And in 2021, that spike was even larger which means the government actually managed to drain resources from the private sector, they taxed us. So it means our net worth goes down and the government gets the money. So they not only don't receive net disposable income on a net basis when the government was sending them checks, they now get drained resources, their wages are lower, and their energy bills are higher, and the median monthly mortgage installment is higher by 44% compared to last year. Now, where is the equilibrium in this system? It's house prices to stop going up. It's very simple. And that is exactly what the Federal Reserve is trying to achieve so that our wealth effect, our consumer sentiment actually declines. And also with the lag, the, the rent of shelter will go down too, affecting the inflationary basket and achieving another of the objective of the Federal Reserve. All right. Um, geez, Alf, I, I could go on forever with you. This is so fun. Um, I'm going to have to start trying to wind it up here, but uh, I just want to remark it, it, it. You're such a great guy to, to bounce ideas around with. Um, so yeah, so just putting an end cap on this, you know, if you're a homeowner, the Federal Reserve has basically said, 
the current Fed policy is to make your house worth less. Uh, so prepare accordingly. Um, all right, I'm, I'm going to switch this now into you know where the markets are headed and, and how to invest for everything we've been talking about. I'm sure that's the primary question that viewers have on their minds right now. Real quick, there's just a question that just stuck in my head. I want to ask your and just super brief answer. When you were sizing the bond market and the stock market, and the bond market was about 20% greater than the stock market. Um, my memory from a decade or two ago was that the bond market used to be a lot bigger than the stock market. Is, is, that, a, is that a true memory or were they always roughly in the same ballpark? It is a true memory, okay. I think. And uh, the, the sharp rise in the equity market capitalization has actually caught up with the difference, let's say, making the difference smaller. We have had such incredible returns in the equity market since that comparison you have in your head, that, that is the reason why the difference has shrunk. But the bond market remains about 20, 25% bigger, yes. Okay, all right. And, and maybe, not putting words in your mouth here, but you know, maybe a good chunk of that equity value appreciation was kind of phantom in the sense that it was juiced by the Fed and all that stuff, and maybe we're going to lose some of that. Who knows? One statistic, Adam, I calculated that since the top in the market, and it's actually since the beginning of the year, the equity, bond, and crypto market have erased $25 trillion. God, isn't that amazing? Combined market cap. So, you know, these numbers can go down pretty quickly. Basically, that's what we were trying to say. And again, that is what the Federal Reserve wants. They want these numbers to go down so that our wealth effect, portfolio wealth effect actually shrinks. Wow, that is a staggering sum. I think if you had told people on December 31st, Markets would lose $25 trillion in the next five months. Nobody, nobody would have believed that. All right, so um, let's get to your market outlook from here. You... This interview with Alf will continue over in part two, which will be released on this channel soon, just as we're finished editing it. To be notified when it comes out, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking on the subscribe button below, as well as the little bell icon right next to it. And be sure to hit the like button too while you're down there. Now last, if the darkening market outlook that ALF has detailed in this interview has you feeling a little vulnerable about the prospects for your wealth, then consider scheduling a free, no-strings-attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your wealth, keeping in mind the trends and risks that ALF has mentioned here. Just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you next over in part two of our video interview with Alfonso Pecatiello. Thank you.